Okay, you want to um, just uh, heads up in five minutes and 40 seconds, I'm going to go take the lid off of my bread that's baking <laughs> right now. Listen. All right. Would you like to start now or should we wait five minutes and 40 seconds? Oh, we should definitely start now and then um, I will interrupt you in mid-sentence because that is more fun. I, I, re I respect that. All right. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I have never been to Earth's moon. Mm -hmm. Joining me is my co-host and erstwhile whimsy, Chris. Hi, Chris. Wait, am I a whimsy? Or I think you're. I, I think you're. Do a I engender whimsy? I can it be both? I like yes. Fair. Yes. And while I don't actually know what erstwhile means, I like to put it in sentences because it sounds fancy. Anytime you can put that many consonants in a row, you know, it feels <laughs> like we're winning against English. <laughs> English is a very combative language against itself. Really. What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I watched a fantastic uh, explainer video. It was probably about from PBS or something that was talking about why English is so weird. And it really has to do with all the various languages that conquered the area that is England today, as well as the great vowel shift and the invention of the printing press. Right. It's, it's a fantastic watch. Uh, you know, if you're listening, you should probably just stop listening and go watch that uh, <laughs> and, and then come back if you feel like it. Man, you are amazing at marketing. I know. I'm really good at this. Thanks, everybody. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the etymology of druthers and see if we have them. Um, and we're going to talk about some security tech garbage. Uh, security garbage as a service, I imagine. Gas, as we call it. <laughs> and I don't know why. I talk about my gas and everybody leaves the room. I know. You're just trying to provide a valuable service to everyone. And in I mean, they don't know it. Educate no, and inform. And inform. There's a reason you always have a kitchen-sized trash bag stapled to your back. And <laughs> it's because you're trying to provide gas to everyone. Hashtag helping. <laughs> Do we still hashtag? We still hashtag, right? Um, I, I feel like people only say hashtag ironically, except for people who don't know. And then they do it seriously, and everybody points and laughs at them behind their back. That sounds like what I was doing then. That one. Okay, okay, good. All right. As long as we're using hashtag appropriately, uh, <laughs> move on to the first topic. The only sure. topic, main topic. What you, you, okay, this is all you. You wrote like 6,000 words here. Um, I didn't put it through the word count engine, but it's got to be somewhere around there. So um, welcome to hour one of a six-hour podcast. And Chris is going to be talking about security. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> then let's begin. <laughs> now I feel like I'm about to be um, tested for like a psychology test. Like a, Oh, sweetie, you've failed. Oh, well, that is what my psychologist said when I was 12. So <laughs> it still tracks and it still hurts. All right, uh, let's let's talk about security. What, what do you got? So this is around an event that I attended Ooh. called Security Field Day. Specifically, the seventh version of these, which was held this past week, which if you're not listening to it this week is March 23rd through the 25th of 2022. 
in person. It was amazing. Oh, you saw other human beings? Other human beings were in a room. I didn't know what to do. Did you panic? Of course. Did you run for the door? Obviously. Or did you just hide under the desk? You know, I would have been, I would have like cut out cardboard shingles and like put them in front of me so it looked like everyone was coming through a Zoom window just to feel more comfortable about the whole situation. Well, I was sitting next to a Canadian, so I already felt 40% safe. (laughs) That's valid. Okay. Um, Anyway, this was a public event, and the full details and recordings of all the sessions are available. Techfieldday.com slash event slash XFD7. We'll include that in the show notes. Yep. And there was good discussion on uh, the Twitters with the hashtag of XFD7. Right, because SFD is already taken by Storage Field Day. Correct, so and X is cooler, so security wins. At least 40% cooler. <laughs> so just a high-level overview of what the event actually is. I mean, Ned, you've been to them before. Do you want to give, give your 30-second overview? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give the 30-minute overview. That's what you said, right? 30 hours. Take it away. Okay, excellent. Uh, Security Field Day is part of the Tech Field Day family of events that's put on by Gestalt IT. In each event, they assemble some tech luminaries that they call delegates and Chris. And <laughs> what they basically have them traditionally attend a series of sessions put on by vendors. The sessions are usually about 90 minutes long. They are in person. And the delegates are meant to be there to represent you, the listeners, the general tech public, to ask probing and insightful questions of the presenter about their technology, to pick apart things that are probably lies and get down to the truth of what a product or technology can actually do. The whole thing is live streamed and then available later. And the, what, what do the vendors get out of it? They get some interesting discussion and also some videos that they can publish later uh, on their YouTube sites. Uh, you know, it's, it's evergreen content for them. So you went to Security Field Day. There's also, as I mentioned, Storage Field Day, Cloud Field Day, Networking Field Day, AI Field Day, and Mobile Field Day, maybe. There's a lot. I There's a lot. I got a lot of stickers. Yes, that is there's there's some swag that comes out of the whole deal. Yeah. So for this specific event, there were nine delegates in the room with three joining in remotely. Um, in general, it basically is the opposite of what you expect from a conference, a conference like reInvent or uh, Ignite or what have you. The vendor stands on a stage. And opines from <laughs> high up above and everyone right. just listens and takes notes. Whereas in the field day events, small room, you're literally within 15 feet of the person who is spewing at you. And you can just put your hand up and say, hold up a minute. Oh, you put your hand up? You're so polite. (laughs) I learned all my rules at nine years old. And uh, that was, you know, where we stuck. Mm -hmm. So there were over, over the entire event, there were eight events, or I'm sorry, eight vendors over three days. So it was, it was a lot. We're not going to have time to do a deep dive on all of them here, but if you want to do that deep dive, you are able to. All those events are recorded in public. I highly encourage anybody to check out the recordings for the maximum amount of information. So I'll talk about vendors, but I also want to talk about themes that seem to come up a lot. And one big theme of the day was zero trust. Ah, my favorite new buzzword. 
It is a fun buzzword. And I'm not surprised that most of the vendors at least name checked it once. Uh, Microsoft led out of the gate hard with their discussion and philosophy of zero trust. And they brought an interesting conversation and that is their killer feature, according to them, was their massive, massive install base and their products interconnectivity. Okay. So the first point is unquestionably true. Microsoft owns the desktop market and has forever. Second largest cloud footprint. And of course, Office 365 for productivity and business intelligence. Pretty much everybody uses them in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And these, as we discussed last week, already all report home about users. And what we didn't notice necessarily was they also report home about threats. And some of the numbers that they saw and reported back to us are pretty staggering. In 2020, Microsoft analyzed 300 billion identity-based logins, 4.1 billion O365 user actions, and 3.2 billion administrator access. Wow. They stated, and this is an exact quote, Microsoft is second to none when it comes to attack diversity. Well, there is something to be said for diversity, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably true for a lot more reasons than they want to admit. Are you are oh. you implying that there's many different ways that you could potentially attack uh, Microsoft products? I would never imply that. I would, in fact, outright say that. Okay, fair enough. So thinking about those kinds of numbers, of course, AI and machine learning come into play. As they highlighted, these are numbers that are impossible for human beings to deal with. Yes. Which I totally get because I can't even keep my inbox clean and I only get like one email a week. You at, for people who are like inbox zero, they would be horrified to see my uh, my Gmail account. <laughs> so Microsoft went through all the products that people have heard of and are probably familiar with at some level. Microsoft Defender for endpoint protection, Sentinel as their feisty up and coming sim, Intune and AD for policy and IAM. They talked about how all these things are super more better, technical term, when they all talk to each other. Mm. So naturally, we led into a conversation about XDR. What the? You want to know what they called their XDR? solution? Microsoft XDR. Okay, well, fine. Uh, first, you're going to have to explain to me what XDR is because that's not an acronym that I'm familiar with. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, that's fair. All right, I'll just look it up on my own. Like the sad human being that I am. Um, but. The whole idea is they bring all this stuff together in the sim. And this is where the naming convention gets a little bit confusing. And you're going to hear me go back and forth about what things are called because Microsoft doesn't really have it all nailed down. This is their XDR solution. But when you look at another page on the website, it's called sim plus XDR vision. Mm. In so, yeah, general, they're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they've got the whole naming things down 100%. I mean, think about the amount of things that used to have other names and are now just been mushed underneath of the Defender umbrella. That is true. Um, I originally did a Pluralsight series on Azure Security Center. And after that came out like a year later, they renamed about half of the things that were in Security Center to be Defender something. Right. And so I had to redo all the videos. Which means oh, and spoiler alert, they have a whole other thing called Defender IoT, completely unrelated. <laughs> okay. But anyway, 
to answer your question, XDR just stands for extended detection and response. And the way that Microsoft describes this basically means you can do better detection and response if you talk to everything. It's the interconnectedness of all things. Mm. The Buddha would be proud. Indeed. But they really, I mean, they pushed it as hard. They pushed it pretty hard, effectively saying that this type of interconnectedness is an essential part of any modern security process. And this was a theme also that was repeated by a lot of vendors. Arista and Juniper talked about the exact same thing, obviously coming from a network hardware and network analysis perspective, but the message was the same. Get all the messages you can from all the different tools in your environment into one place and analyze them there. So Microsoft had a whole bunch of things that they talked about. Um, Microsoft Defender for Cloud is a very exciting name. You'll never guess what it's for. Um, it's for ponies. It's actually for oil changes. Oh, that that does make more sense. Um, no, it's a blanket term to cover protecting your cloud. And they do a whole bunch of things underneath of it, including communicating with all those different tools. But they do vulnerability assessments that use utilize scans through Qualys which unbelievably, you don't have to pay for that. <laughs> you have to pay for something, I'm sure. <laughs> but As of yesterday, Microsoft released a ransomware recommendations dashboard that uses the Defender for Cloud framework, plus all the other stuff, to provide specific security recommendations around ransomware. Wow. Literally yesterday. If you hadn't slacked off and re-recorded on time, we wouldn't have been able to talk about this. That is fair. See, I win again. I'm like, you're helping. I'm helping. So, yeah, it's it's kind of cool that they're doing that. And it's a free thing, a workbook that you can open up in Azure and, and look at for yourself. Um, I haven't looked at the ransomware recommendations dashboard yet, but my assumption is that the recommendations are for how not to get ransomware, not the opposite. Mm, I don't know. I, I You know what they say about when you make assumptions. It makes an ass yeah. out of you. And so, <laughs> one thing that didn't really get covered um, was some of the how. Who manages this stuff? And more importantly to certain people, who pays for this modern security miracle? Mm. These are tools from all over Microsoft's map. We're talking about Endpoint. We're talking about policy. We're talking about IAM. And now we're talking about Defender for Cloud. And of course, we're talking about the SIM, which is Microsoft Sentinel. So some of these are standalone licenses. Some of them are built in. Some of them are wrapped into some type of a Microsoft license that already exists. How are we going to figure out who gets what? And how are we going to figure out what license makes sense so that we don't overpay? Well, Which, as of we course, all Microsoft that... immediately like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean don't overpay? <laughs> we know that Microsoft licensing has always been really easy to understand. And I'm sure they have continued that trend with all these new products. Yeah. And I really have a hard time seeing what they're going to do with the model they have right now, because the answer cannot be, oh, just buy an E5 for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really work. Why would I buy E5 licenses for guest users? They well, here's a better question. If I buy an E5, do I also have to buy an E5 plus security? Is that a license? Probably. Yes. There's an EMS E5 license that still exists, at least the last time I looked. Now, fair 
fair point is they changed this stuff. It might not be the case anymore, but that that was a thing. You could get the E5 security and not have the E5. And if you go Microsoft 365 instead of Office 365, things are going to be different because now you have Defender rolled in for, I'm sorry, Defender for Endpoint rolled in. Right, right, because M365 includes a license for Windows 10 and 11 usage. So to quote a great philosopher, what Microsoft seems to be doing, it's just the Cisco model. Make it so confusing that people give up and just buy the most expensive tier. In fairness, it has worked out well for Cisco. (laughs) It's interesting to note that the best way to start looking at Microsoft licensing, what's included and what's not, is not a Microsoft property. Why would it be? So one thing that they really focused on, as you can imagine, is Sentinel itself. Mm -hmm. And Sentinel is their SIM. It's cloud-based. And it's been around for a few years. I think it went private release in December 2020. And then public release. It was private release uh, 2019 sometime. And I got an early preview of it through the MVP program even before that. But yeah, Sentinel's been around for... In GA, at least two years, possibly longer. Okay. Um, he did say that uh, Sentinel was not your grandfather's sim, which I thought was fairly amusing. <laughs> yeah, because my grandfather knew what a sim was. <laughs> okay. Um, but they were talking about the, the different technologies that worked be- under the covers and behind the scenes and all that stuff. And it was left a little bit vague. One thing that they did highlight is that it would be, quote, 48% less expensive compared to legacy sims. What sims they're mentioning and how that 48% was computed? Nope, no details. Okay, um, okay. Back of the envelope calculations, it did seem like a less expensive option, at least compared to Splunk. But I don't think that's really fair considering Splunk is known as an expensive yet highly functional offer- offering. Yes, yes. It is reassuringly expensive. <laughs> I love that expression. Sentinel has the ability to ingest Microsoft logs, but also external logs. And of course, querying it and storing the information has a cost. One thing that they're doing since it's new is continually releasing new connectors. Hmm. And for third-party tools, when all else fails, you can configure a Linux system to do simple syslog forwarding, at least until a direct connector exists. And I think this is important because they're trying to get all the information they can from all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of legacy systems or devices or shops are already set up to use simple syslog forwarding. So it's good that you can just redirect them out to Sentinel in the cloud until they build, until Microsoft builds a reliable connector for whatever 30-year-old ter- token ring nightmare you Frankenstein into your campus, Ned. <laughs> Oh, don't even get me started on my SCADA network. (laughs) Um, The final thing they talked about was if you want to do something manually, like dig into an event, you can do that not only through like drill down clicking, but also through their own custom querying language, which is called Custo, K-U-S-T-O query language or KQL. Yep. You're familiar? Uh, Yes, I've been forced to use it on occasion. My understanding is it's similar enough to Splunk that people can use it, but it's different enough to make them insane. <laughs> it's it's different enough to be annoying. Yeah. It's kind of how like 
if every single SQL engine had its own unique query language and you had to learn that query language to use that version of SQL, KQL kind of reminds me of that. Hey, we didn't want to go with a standard, so we're going to make our own proprietary thing. That's a good idea. And <sighs> it's a good name? It, it is not. Though it also I meant to look up what custo was supposed to mean, and I never did. It makes me think of uh, Deep Sea Explorer. <laughs> and since we're tight on time, uh, my last point in this Microsoft segment is, since I am losing the war against people in technology who simply live for pronouncing the obviously unpronounceable and insist on calling SQL SQL, I will now be forever referring to KQL as KQL. Love it. I hope you will all join me on my epic quest. I'm already there. So that's pretty much everything on that front. Next up, let's talk about password management. Let's do. Wee. <laughs> so a very exciting presentation by a company that I had never heard of called Keeper Security. And... Are you familiar with Keeper Security? I have never heard of them before, uh, but it sounds like they keep things secure. Ah, great naming. Well done, everybody. We can all And go that's all the time we have. <laughs> so it seems to me that password managers are kind of like banks. Most people reluctantly agree that they are necessary, have a vague idea what they do, and never really ever change the one that they use for any reason uh, ever. I agree. Yes. I've been using the same password manager. I'm going to go with like at least 10 years at this point. So first off, some definitions. A password manager is a distributed system that allows you to have unique and private passwords to every account and website that you use. Ideally, these passwords are strongly encrypted so that nobody, not even the password manager company themselves, has any access to them. These passwords must, however, be easy to access for the user, easy to share, it happens, and definitely easy to change. Mm -hmm. So for a market that not nearly enough people use, it is impressive how many players there are out there. First off, there are built-ins from the browser vendors themselves. Firefox and Chrome have their own accounts and passwords locally on your computer, but you can also do password syncing using your Firefox account. Similarly, you can do things like that in OS X, and I believe in Windows as well. No. Nope. They, Not? I, I don't believe Is it just an edge? I think it's just an edge. I don't okay. believe there's a password manager in Windows. It, it's actually kind of shocking that they don't have one. When you consider the interconnectedness of all things that they were talking about before, it really should be trivial for me to have a password manager on my local Windows desktop that syncs to other Windows devices I might use. Right. But so one thing to note about these basic password managers, and I believe this is the case even for OSX Keychain, when you're logged in, your passwords are unlocked, which means if your computer gets compromised, somebody scans and can download your password database and just read it. It is either unencrypted or trivially, trivially encrypted. That's right. definitely true for Firefox and Chrome. It doesn't so sound great. 
password managers do a significantly better job of this. And I'm sure that people have heard of at least one of them. The ones that came off the top of my head, LastPass, 1Password, Dashlane. Yep, I use Dashlane. You do it. You do Dashlane? Yeah, I've been using Dashlane since, uh, yeah, probably about 10 years now before they really had a paid product. And I've been grandfathered in like twice to have all the paid features still available, even though I don't pay them anything. Nice. Needs to get in early, people. Yeah, I've been using LastPass for five or six years or something like that, and they've never given me anything. Mm -hmm. Anyway, these companies all have their own pros and cons, different use cases, but we're talking about a company in this space called Keeper. Now, it's new to us, but the company's actually been around since 2011. Wow. Okay. So I guess you and I both are one of the lucky 10,000 who just found out that it exists. So, of course, I must talk about it as though no one else has ever heard about it either. I agree. And you're probably right. (laughs) I usually am. So this was security field day, right? Makes sense that Keeper would come out of the gate with security. And Mm -hmm. they did. They were already, like most password managers, SOC 2 compliant, which means that they were trusted to manage consumer data. At the end of 2021, however, Keeper added FIPS 140-2 validation, which is a heavy-duty NIST validation that allows them to work on the most secure of corporate and, most importantly, government projects. Now, it's important to note that this is an add-on. You don't have to use FIPS 140, but if you need it, you can. Okay. Now, in terms of how they handle their business, Keeper refers to their encryption model as zero knowledge and zero trust. There's that word again. Lots of zeros. Yeah. In short, you, as a customer, have a master password only you know. This is where all your personal encryption starts. That password is not shared with Keeper. Every record is individually encrypted via a separate AES key that is tied to your master password through math. I really am trying to avoid the math. (laughs) Understood. Yeah. In addition, you don't have to use a master password. You can use SSO from another identity provider or something that is passwordless like Windows Hello that utilizes the same types of protections through something called elliptic curve cryptography. Keeper goes through their encryption processes. I put that in plural on purpose because there are many in exquisite detail on their encryption model documentation page. Definitely worth a look if you're curious and like line diagrams. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. The end result is your passwords are encrypted locally and only the encrypted password information is stored by Keeper. It is stored so it can be shared either across multiple services and devices protected by your own master password or other credentials or shared with other users at your discretion through that same ECC encryption model. Each password is encrypted with its own unique key, meaning that if in some universe, someone somehow broke the encryption on a single key, which is deeply unlikely, they would only have access to that single password. This would not get them access to your master master password or enable them to read any other encrypted secrets in your vault. And like I said, FIPS 140-2 if you need it. Hardly any other password managers can say that. 
So pretty cool stuff. But where LastPass and the like focus on the end user, the individual, mm-hmm. Keeper also has a strong focus on the enterprise. To that end, while they handle password management admirably, they also handle what are called in the business secrets. Ah, here we go. Which <laughs> this is going to, con- this gets confusing. And I really wish they used a different word because secrets is just frankly too general. Yeah, but it's the industry jargon that the right. other companies in the space use. So just for consistency, they've kind of settled on secrets. Yep. And I get that. And I'm going to do it too, so we can all speak the same language. I'm just saying that sometimes technical people don't do words good. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've definitely not looked at the list of AWS services and wondered if some of them aren't made up. (laughs) So definition, a secret is just what it sounds like. Any piece of digital ephemera that you do not want other people to know. Password is a secret. It's the most common kind of secret. It's not the only kind. Mm -hmm. API access tokens, for example. How do you get one program to talk to another program, guarantee a security level, and make sure that you can control that access at a whim? You do that by managing the secret. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other secrets you would like to give us, for example? Um. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I think really hard about rice pudding. All right. The podcast is not long enough for that. (laughs) Okay. Moving on. Are there raisins though? No, God, no. You don't put raisins in. Well, the only thing that raisins belong in is the trash. Oh God. So this is, this is where it ends. This is where it ends. We had a good gauntlet thrown people. (laughs) The raisin gauntlet goes down. So those API tokens and things like that to allow one program to talk to another program is one of the best reasons to use a secret server. If for no other reason, then it saves you from hard coding passwords into your computer code, (laughs) which people might laugh, but is shockingly common. Oh, yeah. It's right next to the hard coded IP addresses. Yes, sir. You got it. Because DNS is a mystery and I don't trust it. IP addresses, incidentally, could also be a secret, right? Could be. If, yeah. And that's useful because if you had that hard-coded in and the IP address you were connecting to changed, looking in your direction, Oracle, mm. um, you'd have a problem. Yes. So in terms of uh, functionality, manageability, Keeper also has a CLI for both the secrets fault and the secrets manager. So you can access, observe, change, and enable disable behaviors from the command line as well as through the web portal. So that's pretty cool. Everybody yes. likes a nice CLI. I have to imagine that in addition, they have a fully functional API that people can leverage if they want to use Keeper programmatically or bake it into their existing scripting or software. Yep, absolutely. And this is one area where I can't talk about it in excruciating detail because I am not. uh, Well, let's just say my programming skills are um, emerging. (laughs) That's very nice. But those things definitely exist. There's a huge um, leaning towards DevOps types of functions. And they did show, again, if you look at the recording, you can see he goes through some quick examples of programmatic exercises that you can do. There's a lot of code that is pre-written that you can use as templates in order to get this type of functionality going in your own code quickly. But some of the stuff that they can do with the secrets is really pretty impressive from a security and management perspective. 
um, you can expire a secret. Secrets can be rotated in the background. And in the very near future, you're going to be able to enable time-based access to secrets as well as one-time access to secrets for people that are not already within the Keeper ecosystem. Mm. You want somebody to log in one time? You can set up a password for them, give them the API key, and let them do it that way. Mm -hmm. One time, and they're done. Right. So that's immediately a differentiator. If you wanted to use LastPass, for example, to cover all of this stuff, as well as your user amount uh, passwords from your own personal vault, you would have to use companion software such as Delinea or formerly Thycotic Secret Server and a connector between the two. Mm -hmm. Going with Keeper means everything's in one place. And here's a fun fact. If you have an enterprise license with Keeper, a family license is free. That's nice. So you, can, you can see not only where they're leaning, as but they're also helping to try to make everything all in one place. Now, I know what you're thinking. Does this mean that my boss can read my passwords then? What happens if I leave? Well, the enterprise can't read your passwords. They're encrypted by your personal master password. So the master password is going to be at a vault level or at a folder level. You can configure that and you can see who has access to what. And again, if you put a master password somewhere, you're the only person that knows that master password. Mm -hmm. So if you need to either, if you personally leave, you can take your vault with you. It would just drop down to the free tier. Okay. If your company stops paying for Keeper, same thing. If you go to a different company, you can reassign it under their license. All of that information in the vault though, stays unique to you. Okay. And you can relicense it at your leisure. Right. And this, this vault that we're talking about is stored in their cloud service. Correct. But everything is encrypted locally before it's uploaded to the vault. So all they have is your encrypted secrets and none of your unencrypted data. Correct. Okay. Like ever. None of your unencrypted data, like ever. Ever, ever. And ever? The, ever, ever? <laughs> um, there's an offline mode that you, can that you can usually use because the expectation is you're not going to be online 100% of the time. However, for the enterprise, you can force people to be online all the time. Mm. So if you want to make certain, or if you want the ability to say, I want to disable this user's account immediately, lock all of their secrets right now, meaning that they can't use them as of this second, you can force them to be online all the time. Which is kind of, for, for companies that are especially concerned about security, disabling offline access is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, finally, they have a couple of other projects that I think professionals are going to be increasingly interested in. One of them that is hot off the presses is Keepers just this year, February 22, they acquired a company called Glyptodon. It's a great and, name. Yeah, that's a, that's a name you're not going to forget, isn't it? No, I'm going to think it's a dinosaur, but uh, <laughs> okay. Glyptodon provides tightly integrated and secured web portal access that front ends servers. This soon to be renamed project provides secure access to insecure protocols such as RDP, VNC, SSH, and apparently Kubernetes has their own protocol through a front end web browser. All the mm. security discussed above applies. 
Sidepoint, Glyptodon founded and maintains the open source and delightfully named Apache Guacamole Project. I love the Apache Guacamole Project. Total sidebar, but uh, I have interacted with it and used it on a few projects to provide like labs, interactive labs for folks where mm -hmm. they just get a web interface where they can RDP and SSH or whatever into different various systems. And it lets you sort of lock down what they can do and really give them a sandbox to play in. And then you can blow the whole thing up when you're done. Right. So Glyptodon, what Keeper is putting out there is the enterprise commercial version of that. Okay. And they have committed to continuing to keeping Guacamole open source and contributing to the project as they did before. That's great. I like that. And okay. kind of to the point that you just made, um, Glyptodon grants access to those systems without the end users needing to know the password that the system accepts. Mm -hmm. So you log in as Ned with a password of 12345 into Glyptodon, and then you double click on, a, on an icon that says, open up this RDP session. How you actually logged into that system is completely different. You're not logging in with Ned 12345. You're logging one, in two, with- three, four, five, six, obviously. Right. Right, we've moved. We've added thirteen percent more security. Absolutely. But then you now have another layer of security. So even if your first layer of security got breached, they would not be able to log into that system, even though they knew the password of Ned one two three four five. Right. So, I think that's pretty fun. I think it is pretty fun as well. There's a number of other companies in this space that are doing similar things, but I think it's also an emerging space and there's plenty of room for all these different vendors to ply their wares and find buyers and competition's good. So I'm glad to hear there's more than just one solution because the solution that I'm most familiar with is HashiCorp's Vault product, which does a lot of what Keeper does at the enterprise level. The secret mm. management, rotation, the you know single use access tokens, all that kind of jazz. It does all of that, but it doesn't have the personal side. No one's using Vault to, to do their personal password management, or at least say, like most people aren't. Um, <laughs> and like they are, they're doing it the hard way. Right. They HashiCorp's working on a separate project called Boundary that does a lot of what the Glyptodon project is is doing today. So. There's two examples of, you know, two separate vendors that are, you know, trying to solve the same issue. Um, there's also strong DM, which is out there and they are heavily into the providing remote access to systems without you having to go directly to those systems. They're basically a proxy solution uh, that can do a lot of the single sign on stuff like that. So there, there's three solutions right there that are all in the mix, trying to crack this nut and I think all three of those products are, or vendors are going to continue to get better because there's this competition. It's like, oh, they have this feature. Oh, well, now we have to have this feature. So uh, we win, I guess, is that's my story. But this sounds really cool. I, I kind of want to take it for a test drive and, and see how it stacks up to what I've used already. Yeah, same. Okay. Lightning round? Lightning round. I don't think we did this last week. Uh, no, so the we lightning didn't. round is meant to be uh, shorter segments, and we'll see how that works out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. NFTs right. are awful and worthless and are 100% a scam. Want to know more? Buy our NFT. Wah, wah, wah. There's something like 20 million NFTs out there, and spoiler alert, they're all garbage. 
Oh yeah. One third of NFTs are already zombie projects with little to no trading, meaning they are worthless. Another one third that are still operational are trading at costs lower than what it took to mint them. So do the math here and don't give your money to these scammers. I don't even have a zinger joke to end this with. NFTs are enough of an autological joke all by themselves. They're not a tautological joke. You're a tautological joke. <laughs> That's what I Note said. Note to selfs. Why didn't we do an NFT? I thought we were going to do that before the jokes about NFTs. What? Whatever. Oh, I couldn't mint it in time. That's my fault. I was I was having trouble coming up with a good name for it. Like CL tokens seemed too obvious, and lever tokens was okay. Um, and chaos tokens. Gone... No, we do token, did. but it's T O C L K E N. Oh, so it can like be token. But it's and then we get sued. There we are. <laughs> so a counterpoint to your NFTs are 100% scam. No one should use them. Yuga Labs just raised a seed round at a valuation of $4 billion. Are you familiar with Yuga Labs? I mean, I am, but the users probably aren't. Uh, they are the startup that crafted the Bored Apes NFTs. So if you've heard oh, of right. Bored, Apes, yeah. Bored Apes Yacht Club, that was started by this company. And, and that's had basically the Bitcoin, one. right? Bored Ape is the one that made everybody think that this is a real business. Yes, that's the one that kind of took off after stuff like CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties or whatever. This was the NFT ApeCoin that really kind of like took off for a while. And due to that, they have raised $450 million from Andreessen Horowitz, who I thought were cool and now I'm starting to think are not so cool. Well, they were. <laughs> cool but time is a flat circle <sighs> i suppose and we're on the wrong side the wrong side of the token if you will Oy. i'm so sorry uh counter counterpoint uh, a web3 digital startup called unstoppable domains is putting together a funding round for a valuation of one billion dollars and what unstoppable domains is trying to do is be the sort of octa for the Web3 world, so being a decentralized digital identity provider. This is probably one of the only actual uses for any of this garbage. <laughs> uh, you know, Tell me more. Well, I mean, so there's been a lot of discussion uh, about around blockchain and, you know, transactional ledgers, distributed transactional ledgers. And is there actually a use for any of it? Or is it just a slower, crappier database? And the answer for a lot of that is yes, it's just a slower, crappier database. And there are solutions that already exist that solve this problem. But there are a few things like if you wanted to have a decentralized digital identity that's not reliant on a centralized system, like I don't want my identity tied to Twitter or my identity tied to Google, for instance, you know, I don't want to use Google to sign on as everything. What if I could use a decentralized version of that and have a digital identity that I own and manage, but I can still use it to sign on to things across the internet. That's kind of the idea behind the decentralized digital identity. And that is what unstoppable domains is trying to do. So I, we'll, we'll obviously return to this as it 
becomes either more relevant or less relevant. <laughs> at least that I was like, okay, well, at least this company seems to be doing something less awful. Um, and speaking of Okta, you know they were hacked, right? Yeah, and they were telling us all about it in a complete full disclosure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So hacking group Lapsus uh, in addition, has been kind of on a tear recently. They're a, a South American-based uh, hacking group, and they have successfully hacked some pretty big companies, including Microsoft and Okta. And Okta at first was like, no, no, we weren't hacked. Didn't happen. Uh, and then they were like, no, no, we didn't lose any customer data. It's all good. You know, they didn't get, and they're like, oh, well, they, you know, about 15% of customers might be impacted by this. Uh, it does not, it continues to get worse, not better. Cool. And yeah, now it seems like what was actually hacked was a support center based in South America that was providing outsourced services to Okta. So if you called in, you know, to log a support ticket for your Okta account, you might be talking to this group as opposed to talking to someone who actually works at Okta, which is not nice. uncommon. That's pretty normal to outsource some portion of your customer service. But this outsourcing had access to some tenant level administrative credentials. And one of the documents that the Lapsus found and then leaked was an Excel spreadsheet called Dom Admins dash LastPass <laughs> Export. <sighs> Apparently, they were storing things in LastPass and then exported it out to a spreadsheet. Oh, boy. Maybe we should just send them this episode so that they can learn about Keeper. <laughs> Maybe we should. So I think we brought it all the way around now. Um. These hacks are going to keep happening, and if you're out there in the enterprise world, yeah, might be a time to investigate some of the solutions out there like Keeper or Vault or anything else that, you know, helps keep things safe and also rotates them on a regular basis, <laughs> those kinds of right. things, and doesn't put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, any of those probably would be good. Chris, what else you got? Zoom avatars. You can finally turn up to a Zoom meeting as a rabbit or a dog. There are two kinds of people out there. There are the kinds of people who are excited to show up to the 200-person all-hands as a CGI dog, and there are liars. I, for one, have relished the capability to use a virtual background, and am now looking forward to virtualizing myself as well. Perhaps a giraffe when it's released. Fun fact, did you know that giraffes have the same amount of cervical vertebrae as humans? <laughs> I saw it on Pinterest, Ned. It has to be true. Uh, yes. Ah, Pinterest, the last bastion of truth in, in a world of turmoil. Good job, Pinterest. It's the teen vogue of 2022. A giraffe, huh? I, I don't know what fun animal I would want to be. I, I mean, You're not I'd fun, Ned. Have... You're not oh. fun. Well, I mean, that's probably part of the problem. I guess I'd have to be like a tree sloth. Just kind of boring. I don't move around a lot. Yep, that fits. Okay. I was told that the future would be plastics. I was not told that they would be in my bloodstream. So next up from the, but they said that pollution was no big deal, really, department. Microplastics, or tiny pieces of the most common types of plastics, PET, polystyrene, etc., have been found in people's blood. Like, a lot of people's blood. 
A research team in the Netherlands found a quantifiable mass of plastic in 17 out of 22 blood donors, aka 77%, which, if you're keeping track at home, is more than 40. The study leaked. The study lead asked what I assume was a disparagingly rhetorical question when speaking to the independent, asking how much plastic in the bloodstream is too much. Hmm. I think anything over 40%. <laughs> so, um, that's it. Listener, you did it. You made it to the end. This is the part you'll probably skip, which means you'll miss out on all of our best secrets. Like my, that is actually a lemur. Oh, damn it. I was going to share my recipe for shepherd's pie. The secret is that I use the tears of kittens. Uh, so long you... as you don't use actual kittens. Well, I mean, not like the whole kitten, which uh, some people <laughs> might take a, a front to, because if you're going to use a kitten, you should use the whole kitten. But I just, I can't find a use for the, the claws. Make earrings? I don't know. Anyway, uh, if you want to find me or Chris on Twitter, I'm Ned1313, and Chris is Hainer80, respectively. Um, or you can follow the show if that's the sort of thing you like to do. You're going to have to search for Chaos Lever and find it yourself, you weird sicko. Uh, show notes are available at chaoslever.com. If you like reading things, which you shouldn't, podcasts are still better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see if the amount of hell has increased by 40%. Ta-ta for now. <laughs>